Let me say a prayer for us and we'll dive into a brand new series. Lord, thank you so much for the nation in which we live. I pray for our leaders that you would turn their hearts toward you and that this country would be a place of justice and a beacon of peace. Father, I thank you for the freedom that we have to speak your word truthfully to this world. May we speak it with grace and in truth. In Christ's name, amen. We are starting a three-week series. It's kind of a Christmas series and kind of not. So I'm not trying to do a head fake here on you, but we are going to talk about the Christmas story in the cons, really in the, basically the structure of talking about how do we know that the Gospels, the Christmas story are believable. For example, there's a book coming out, maybe it just did, but it's about to come out, that says uh, analyzing the Gospels proves that Jesus never really existed. And so there are not many scholars that think that anymore. But the interesting thing is, and here's the question that I would ask is, basically, how do we know whether or not the Christmas story is a myth? You could ask that question about everything in the Gospels. How do we know that the stories of the miracles, that the events that happened, that uh, the prodigal son story, how do we know that these aren't just myths that were made up? Is there any basis for us to basically think that they are historically accurate. Well, one reason, I want to look at a couple of ways of looking at this. One, I want to look at external evidence. The other is internal evidence for the Christmas story and for the Gospels in general. But first, this is a map of just to kind of answer the question about does Christianity purport to be something more than a myth? In other words, there are books of wisdom in the world that you would read the book, and they aren't claiming to be true. They're claiming to be stories that will teach you truth. Think about, many of you probably read Aesop's fables. Those stories are not true. I mean, many of the characters in the story are animals that talk to one another, but they purport to give you truths. So is Christianity, is the New Testament just telling you stories that convey a truth, or are they actually true? Around the time of Jesus, this is what the Roman Empire looked like. And so the entire, Jesus is born right there in the middle of a small nation, seemingly insignificant, and the Roman Empire was huge, dominant empire in the entire world, but certainly in this part of the world. The story of the cross, the story of Jesus, is set in a specific historical time, in a specific geopolitical environment, with a specific person of Jewish descent born a Jewish peasant. In other words, Christianity is integrally set in a historic time frame. In fact, it's more than that. It even claims that as you read the Old Testament, God has been working toward this moment with people in real life, in real geopolitical circumstances. So Christianity is not once upon a time, there was a guy named Jesus, and he was born, and he did this, and he did that, and so you should learn these important truths. It says once upon an actual real time, Jesus was born right there in that nation while the Roman emperors were ruling the world. So, is the Christmas story a myth? Christianity says no. It's rooted in history, and it says that it is historically accurate. That's really different than many other religions because a lot of them want to say, hey, I'm going to tell you what's true or real or right, but not anchoring it to anything in history. Christianity is inexplicably tied to history. So let's look at some external evidence. Is there anything outside the Bible that talks about Jesus, talks about Christianity? Is there anything outside the Bible that we would call external evidence? There's not a lot. There's actually quite a bit considering the circumstance. It's not like you would expect a lot of secular writers to be writing about a Jewish peasant. I mean, if you stop and think about it, are there things written about Emperor Nero? Sure. But why would you expect that a Roman historian or a Jewish historian might write about this person who was crucified on a cross? 
So you wouldn't expect actually anything to be mentioned. And yet there are. This is a quote from Suetonius. Suetonius is a Roman historian. The dates there, 69 to 122, are his lifetime. So you can see that he's right in that first century period, very close to the events that are happening. The book is uh, The Lives of the Twelve Caesars, very interesting reading. He says this, now remember, you're not expecting a whole biography of Jesus here, but it's really amazing that he even gets mentioned. It says, because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from the city. The he is Emperor Claudius, and this is 49 AD. So think about 16 years after the crucifixion. What's happening in the city of Rome? In the city of Rome, from a Roman historian's point of view and from the emperor's point of view, there are all these disturbances over some guy named Crestus. And what's happening, we know from the New Testament, is the Jews who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah are persecuting the Christians. And there are riots and there are stonings and it's just to the Romans it just looks like a disturbance. And they say, what is going on? And it's over this guy, Crestus. Well, in Latin, Jesus, Christ, is Christus. And so it's not unusual to think that he got the name just a little bit wrong. Sounds exactly like that. Most people think, and I certainly do, that what he's talking about is he's confirming that there was strife amongst the Jews about this guy Crestus. Well, Suetonius doesn't really know much about who this guy is. He just knows this is the source of the problem. And so you get a mention here, in my view, that's clearly confirming that the Jews of that time and the Christians of that time are talking about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. So this is an external source saying, hey, what you read in your New Testament indeed appears to have been happening there. Here's a Get over to this. There we go. This is from Tacitus. Tacitus is another Roman, a historian. The date's there from about 56 to about 120 AD. So again, he lived right in this time period where these things are happening. He is talking about, now move on from 49 to 54 AD. He's going to talk about an event that happened in 54 AD. Again, this is really close to Jesus' death. Paul is out preaching at this time, so are all the other apostles. Nero has become the emperor. And Nero decides that Rome looks kind of trashy and he wants to rebuild it. But because of zoning regulations, he can't get what he wants from the zoning commission. So he sets a fire, he pays people to do it, sets fire and a huge fire burns through the slums of Rome. A lot of Romans are, are, uh, die in this fire and they're Roman citizens. This is not a good thing to do. So word started that Nero had actually done this. Now, I don't know if that's an impeachable offense in those days, but it's not a good thing that you, the emperor, are convicted of having killed a bunch of your citizens and burned up a big part of Rome. Well, Nero, he is frantic to make it look like it's somebody else. So for example, he said, it was the gods. The gods were angry with us. Let's go sacrifice to the gods. And so then he would just do anything he could to say, no, it wasn't me, it was something else. And so that's what Tacitus is talking about. Listen to this. He says, but neither human resources nor imperial munificence nor appeasement of the gods eliminated the sinister suspicions that the fire had been instigated. In other words, no matter what Nero did, everybody thought, yeah, we think it's you. So to suppress this rumor... Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. Their originator, Christ, had been executed in Tiberius's reign, Emperor Tiberius, just as the New Testament says, by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. But in spite of this temporary setback, the deadly superstition, Christianity, had broken out afresh, not only in Judea, where this mischief started, but even in Rome. Well, now this is very interesting, that you've got this Roman historian talking about a Roman event where Nero decides, I'll persecute these Christians. Now, you can tell Tacitus is not a Christian. Tacitus isn't even 
even friendly to Christianity. He thinks it's a superstition. He thinks these people are causing problems. He thinks they probably deserve whatever they get. But he gives us evidence that at that time in history, people understood that these Christians had an originator, a person named Christ, who was executed during the reign of Tiberius by Pontius Pilate. That's really powerful corroboration by an external source. This isn't a Christian writing in the New Testament that Jesus was born and so forth. You go outside the New Testament and you see evidence that this Jesus really did exist. He really is the one that the Christians were talking about. So it's really strong corroboration uh, from the outside. Let me switch to a uh, Jewish commentator, a guy named Josephus, whom you may know. Josephus is an interesting guy. He lived between about 37 and 100 AD. Again, these are people who are living in the time, very close to the time. They're interviewing people. They actually have access to all the documents, right? So Josephus was a Jew who kind of turned and went with the Romans. So in 66 AD, there is a rebellion in Judea, and the Jews rebelled against the Romans. It resulted a few years later in 70 AD with the Romans destroying the temple. That's probably what you know most about that rebellion. But Josephus was one of the generals on the Jewish side. And to make a long story short, because it's not really part of this discussion, he basically became a traitor and went over to the Romans and then helped the Romans to kind of suppress the rebellion. So needless to say, Josephus, not that popular in uh, Israel. He went back to Rome and lived out his life there, and he wrote a bunch of books about his people, the Jews. One of the books is called The Antiquities of the Jews. It's basically a history of the Jewish people. It's not like the Old Testament. It's him writing a history. Some of the things are correct. Some of the things are not correct. But this is interesting because you also see him talking about Christ and the Christians. Now, there was about this time Jesus. In other words, he's writing about this time period of 30 AD. This is where he's at in his history. This is near the end of the book. Jesus, he was a wise man. And Josephus is not a Christian. If it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, miracles, a teacher of such uh, men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ, the Messiah. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, in other words, some of the leading Jews, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again on the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named after him, are not extinct at this day. So near the end of his life, he's saying, oh, and by the way, these Christians are all still around. Very interesting. I mean, none of these things prove everything the Bible says about him, but it's really interesting to see external sources that say, oh, yeah, there was this Jesus. Here's Josephus who lives at that time and who's saying, yeah, there's a guy named Jesus and he rose up and I'm not a Christian, but boy, that guy did some serious miracles, pretty wise teacher, pretty beloved, but some of the Jewish leading people wanted him killed and so Pilate had him crucified. And then his followers said he rose again from the dead and they saw him. They say they saw him on the third day and now they're Christians everywhere. That's a pretty powerful corroboration from a source that is not Christian. And then one more as we talk about these external sources. This is uh, Josephus again. He's talking about the mechanics of how Jesus was killed. Therefore, Ananias was of this disposition. He thought he had now an opportunity to exercise his authority. Ananias is trying to get rid of Jesus. Festus, who's a Roman governor, was now dead. Excuse me. We're going to talk about James, uh, the brother of Jesus. He said, Festus, the Roman governor, was dead, and Albinus, who was coming to be the new governor, wasn't there yet. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of the judges, the Sanhedrin, and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, and the brother's name was James. And when he had formed an accusation against them, he delivered them to be stoned. The New Testament talks about the death of James, but what's interesting is Josephus refers to him as James, 
Oh, and he is the brother of Jesus who is the Messiah. So I wanted to just give you some selections of things outside of the Bible that point to the historicity of Jesus and the historicity of certain key events in his life. Does that make sense? You don't hear this a lot, but I want you to understand, Christianity says, hey, this is rooted in real history, and there are evidence of that that are not connected to the Bible. So that's one piece of external evidence. Second piece of external evidence is I want to talk about the idea of what happened. In other words, can you believe what the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what they are saying? Well, one powerful piece of evidence about the disciples themselves was what happened to them. Suppose for a moment that Jesus didn't exist, or suppose he did exist, but he wasn't really the Christ. And suppose for a moment then, put yourself in the position of his 12 disciples. If you knew he didn't exist, or if you had lived with him for three years and thought, okay, this guy is not God in the flesh, he is not the Christ, he's just a really slick snake oil salesman. If that were the case, then you would expect them to behave in some kind of self-serving way, and yet they do not. The disciples themselves and the Christians who believed their message did not have good lives. If this were a hoax, you would expect the disciples to go out and teach, make a lot of money, be on TV, you know, kind of selling DVDs or something, buy themselves a jet, fly around and speak in big coliseums all around the world. That's not what happened to them, is it? Now, I'm not telling you this proves that Jesus is who he says he was. What it proves is they certainly thought so, and they not only thought so, they thought so so sincerely that every single one of them suffered for what they believed and all but John were murdered. They were killed for what they believed. Now, again, does that say it's true? No, but it's very powerful evidence that they were there, they were with him for three years, and they believed that. If he didn't rise from the dead, why would they live the lives the way they did? Why would they sacrifice their life for that? Here are some things. Uh, let's talk about that just a little bit. Suetonius says this, talking again about the lives of the 12 Caesars. Punishments were inflicted on the Christians, a sect professing a new and mysterious superstition. So Suetonius is basically saying Christians didn't have it easy. In other words, it, the easy button would have been, I'm not going to be a Christian. Maybe all that stuff's a myth, maybe it's made up. If you are going to be punished and you're going to hold on to those beliefs, beliefs, you believe it to be true. In the case of the 12 disciples and several hundred other people whom the Bible said saw Jesus when he was raised from the dead, and then in the case of people afterwards who, felt, who believed it so strongly they were willing to die. Another passage, this is from Tacitus. This is talking about Nero. We're, we're giving you the rest of that passage I gave you a few minutes ago. This is what happened to early Christians in Rome. He said their deaths were made farcical. They were dressed in wild animal skins. They were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified or made into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight. I mean, the persecution of Christians, and this is just the beginning. This is Nero. It's not even that bad yet. For the next 200 years, it's going to get worse. My point there is not to say, is any of this conclusive proof? My point is that this is pretty compelling evidence of the sincerity of their belief that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that he really was who he said he was. People who read a document and say, these are fairy tales. Nobody died like that for Aesop's fables. In other words, they believed that it was rooted in history. They could see those places, and they behaved in that manner, even to the point of being covered with tar and lit on fire to be torches at night. So a lot of these things happen. Now, what about some of the apostles? Again, all but John, uh, according to church tradition, were killed for preaching the gospel. Two were killed in Rome. One was uh, the apostle Peter. This is a 
painting of the crucifixion of Peter. Peter was killed by this same Nero, and according to church tradition, he was killed in 68, right before Nero died. Nero uh, ruled from 54 AD to 68, been persecuting Christians the whole time. In 68, he was picked up for preaching the gospel, and he was crucified because he was not a Roman citizen. And according to church tradition, he asked to be crucified upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to die in the same way that Jesus died. The apostle Paul was also arrested for preaching the gospel, and he wrote 2 Timothy. When you read that, you can tell he knows that he's not going to get out of jail. And so he is in prison for preaching the gospel. He is a Roman citizen, so he's not... uh, crucified according to church tradition and according to Roman tradition, he was beheaded. And so I think that there's powerful evidence, first of all, from the external sources, but then secondly, from the behavior of the people who were actually with Jesus. It's impossible to look at the external sources and say there wasn't somebody named Jesus. And so you look at the Gospels and say, well, this may or may not be true about him, but he most certainly existed. If even the most basic things are true, that he had these 12 disciples, which history seems to bear out, and if also those 12 disciples were with him for three years, which the New Testament says, which is not particularly debatable, then their behavior is also evidence that they thought he was who he said he was, and they were there with him. And so when you think about, can I trust what the Gospels have to say, one of the things that you have to think about is what are the external evidences? Is this reasonable? Would you expect, if this were true, would you expect to see what you saw? Actually, with the historians, you wouldn't even necessarily expect them to talk about Jesus. It wasn't that big a deal at that time, that early time, in the context of the Roman Empire, and yet they do. You would expect the disciples to, I mean, you might expect them not to give up their lives because that requires a great deal of faith and bravery, and yet they did. So those are kind of powerful evidences for the reasonability of what the Gospels claim to be. Let's look at some internal evidence. What does the Scripture have to say about itself? Uh, Richard Bauckham's done some good work. This book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, is a little bit technical, but it's really good, and he makes this interesting point is let's look at the Gospels and see what do they want to be. In other words, do the Gospels want to be somebody writing saying, there was this guy Jesus who lived in a galaxy far, far away, you know, and I heard he did this, and I heard he did that, and I heard he did that. That's not really what it is. Most of the history books you pick up today, that's really what they are. They may be right, but they're basically written by somebody who was not even there at the time. And yet, you believe a lot of what is written. Makes sense. A lot of times it's true. Bauckham makes this point. It is a rather neglected fact that all history, like all knowledge, relies on testimony. So I want you to think about this in the context of just normal books today. When you pick up a newspaper, that's a form of history. Uh, The Mueller investigation is trying to get at what actually happened in history. Now, that history appears not to be very far back. If you write a book on the biography of uh, James Madison, which I just read recently, another on uh, Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton, I read recently, that's somebody writing today, trying to accurately find out what happened in the past. How do they do that? Ultimately, the chain of sources goes back to some kind of testimony. Give you a great example. You remember the story about uh, George Washington cuts down the cherry tree, gets in trouble for it, says, I cannot tell a lie, I cut down the tree. Well, that's a great little story. It is probably not true. And so as historians go back and back and back and back, they really can't find any verification that that happened. It appears to be something that was made up and makes him look pretty good, right? Probably his PR firm put that out, I don't know. But my point is, ultimately, to find out what happened, you need to go back to somebody that was there. You need to corroborate this. And Bauckham makes this great point. 
all history relies on testimony ultimately to get at what actually happened. Another quote, he said, the Gospels, now this is the interesting observation, the Gospels were written within the living memory of the events they recount. Mark's Gospel was written well within the lifetime of many of the eyewitnesses, while the other three canonical Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, were written in the period when the living eyewitnesses were becoming scarce. They were about to die, exactly at the point in time when their testimony would perish if it were not put into writing. This is a highly significant fact, entailed not by unusually early datings of the Gospels, but by the generally accepted ones. Let me explain this. This is a powerful piece of evidence that the Gospels really are accurate. So what he's saying is this. First of all, the Gospels were written by people who saw it or they talked to people who saw the events, right? This is the equivalent of basically writing about uh, Washington right after he dies, talking to people that he lived with, talking to people that he worked with. That's pretty accurate stuff, isn't it? You are talking to eyewitnesses. His first point is this. The Gospels are eyewitness accounts. They are not saying, I heard this, I heard that. They said, I talked to eyewitnesses, or in many cases, I was there, and this is what happened. Powerful point. Second point is equally powerful. What he's saying is if you just look at the accepted dates of the Gospels, especially uh, Matthew, Luke, and John, they tend to have been written around, most people, it's, they'll date them a little bit differently, but think in the 60s, 70s AD, that's about the time when the eyewitnesses would be starting to die, right? You're, say you're 30 years old, by the 70 AD, you're 70, so people start to die. Those weren't written down earlier because they didn't need to be. You have all these eyewitnesses out there just giving their testimony, right? They're just telling, I saw this, I did this, Jesus said this, I heard him, I was there when he was sitting on the mountain and this is what he said. But as they start to die, what would you do? You'd go, hey, we better write this down because these are the eyewitnesses. We want to make sure we get this right. So you would expect the Gospels to be written about the time the eyewitnesses were dying and that's exactly what dating shows. Does that make sense? Very powerful arguments. This all fits together, and it all points to the same thing. It's very reasonable. Everything you would expect to be happening, if this were true, is happening. Very powerful evidence to that effect. Look at uh, 1 John. I love this. This is the Apostle John, and this is what the Bible says about itself. He's writing this letter, and listen to what he says. That which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. That's what I am proclaiming concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what? What we heard, what we think, what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So what is John saying? He said, I was there, and I am going to tell you what Jesus said. And you can look at the history of my life if you want to. You can look at the history of the other 11 uh, and see what they're teaching, and they're telling you the same things I am. So the Scriptures are saying... This is an eyewitness account. It's really popular to kind of throw some fuzz. Like if you listen to the History Channel, here's the narrative you're going to hear. Well, you've got Jesus, and he probably lived, and he probably did some stuff. And you got the guys that were there and saw it. And they started an oral tradition, like the telephone game. You know, I tell, you know what the telephone game is? You, it's hilarious. You tell somebody, and they whisper that phrase to the end, and then they say, well, what did you hear? And it has nothing to do with the first thing. In other words, when things get transmitted, they get messed up. So that's what uh, doubters will say. Well, one guy told the next guy, he told the next guy, he told the next guy, and then finally somebody wrote it all down. It's probably not what really happened. That is not true. 
There is an oral tradition of people out there orally telling you things, but John wrote that and he was there. It's not somebody saying, well, John told so-and-so, he told so-and-so, he told so-and-so. There are accounts like that in the church fathers, but in the New Testament, the gospels are saying, I saw it. Listen to Luke. This is uh, Luke who did not see everything, but he's writing it down. What does Luke say in his gospel? He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. In other words, many people have been starting to write down, by that time, they are indeed trying to write down what the eyewitnesses said. He said, many people are trying to put this together so you can know, hey, this is what happened. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So what's Luke doing? Is he going to the library and reading a book about Jesus or talking to somebody whose great-grandfather knew Jesus? No. He said, I talked to everybody that was there and wrote it down. So it's a powerful idea, this idea of being eyewitness testimony. Very different. In other words, this kind of history is, you would generally consider it far more accurate than any other kind of history. So for example, if I've got a biography written today about uh, Alexander Hamilton, and you have one written by his son 10 years after his death, which one, if they disagreed, would you think is most likely? You may not be able to prove it. He's dead, right? But which would you consider more reliable? Well, I would consider the one that, well, the kid lived with him. You know, he's probably right. Could he have lied? I guess. Would these guys have lied? Apparently not. If they were lying, they sure had a lousy life, right? So in other words, the evidence, the preponderance of the evidence would say, this is actually more accurate than anything that would come later. Certainly that anything scholars are writing today trying to tell you, nah, those guys did not know what really happened. Jesus didn't say that, he didn't say that, he didn't say that. And John says, I beg to differ. I was there. That's powerful history and it's powerful testimony. So let me pause for a second because I've been talking fast and, and talking a lot and just say, where are we? We basically said this, the Gospels say we are history. We are telling you what actually happened, not once upon a time stories that might tell you truths that you should live by. We're actually claiming these things happen. External evidence from secular writers who were not Christian. You have the evidence of what the apostles believed. They might have been deceived, but they probably weren't lying if they all gave up their lives. And then finally, the internal evidence of these are indeed historically eyewitnesses who are recording it, which makes their testimony very reliable. Let me pause there for a minute and see what questions do you have about that? Um, are there any other known writings by the authors of the Gospels? Are there any other known writings by the authors of the Gospels? That's a good question. In other words, did they do a sequel? Or was there a movie, you know, John, the story, chapter 2? No, uh, not to our knowledge. In other words, we do, I'm not saying that they didn't write something else. In fact, I think it's very likely that, for example, the Apostle John, he writes the Gospel of John. He wrote three letters that we have, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. That's all those are. Is first letter we found, second letter we found, third letter we found. He probably wrote other letters, but we do not have any of those other letters. Moving out of the Gospels, because that's a good question, the Apostle Paul, we know he wrote other letters because there are references to some of them. In other words, one letter refers to another letter he wrote to the Christians in Corinth. We don't have that letter. We have one and two. There appears to have been one in between there, but we don't have it. So basically, to answer the question, no, there is nothing that we know of that was written by, the, by them, although it's likely they could have written other things. Good question. There are people who say that the Gospels are not actually written by those whom they're named after. Is there any evidence of that? Good question. There are people who claim that the Gospels are not written by the people that they are named after. One of the reasons people say this is it typically 
when, when the Gospels were written, they likely did not have, if you go to the start of your book, I go to mine and it says at the top of the page, the Gospel, the good news, according to Luke. That is on some of the old manuscripts, but that likely was not on the original one that was written. And so that's true. That was not the norm in any document at the time. What happened was when people started copying it, they put the name of who it was. So you are getting what early people thought was the case. Now, are they wrong? No particular reason to think they are wrong. But if you don't like the Gospels, you might as well throw it out there and go, hey, could have been somebody else. Two issues around that. Number one, there's not any compelling reason to think that it's anybody else. That's sort of like today, you know, I'm telling you something about the Civil War, and I say, look, I know that there are a bunch of Civil War veterans who have said this is what happened at Antietam, but I, Terry, am going to tell you it didn't happen that way. Who do you believe? Well, the people that put the titles on this are people that were copying these right after they were written. So it's a little presumptuous for us today to say, oh, we know better than they did. Could they be wrong? Yes. I'm not trying to whitewash this. But who do you think is most likely to be right? Clearly, the people that were closer in time should get the benefit of that doubt rather than a scholar today who's making a lot of conjectures. So can you prove that that was written by Luke? Not really. Is there any reason to believe it's not? No, in fact, there are a lot of reasons to believe it was because everybody at that time thought it was. Why would I doubt that? That's usually indicative of skepticism. Somebody's got their mind made up before they start. The other thing is the dating of the Gospels. There's not that much doubt, seriously, about the dating. I mean, it'll be in a 20, 30-year period because it's not like it's got a date on it. It's not like a take a picture and it's got the little date there. It didn't have a date on it, but there's not that much discussion about the relative dating of the Gospels. The thing is, Luke could have written that. There are other things. For example, there's a Gospel of Thomas, and it is one that you'll hear all about on uh, TV shows that are skeptical. And it says, this is some records of what Jesus said. It's a bunch of sayings of Jesus. We've, we've studied it before in some of my other series. But it basically says, I'm Thomas. The guy was with Jesus. I'm going to tell you some stuff he said. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, it's, it's kind of weird. Well, here's the thing. No scholar thinks Thomas wrote that partly because it's dated well, well into the second century. Somebody wrote it, put Thomas's name on it. That happened in ancient times. Well, it's not hard to figure that one out because it's dated so much later that Thomas would have had to been a remarkable medical miracle to still be alive. There are other reasons to think it's not written by Thomas, but that's the obvious one. These gospels, as evidence, are written in the time period where Luke was alive. Does that make sense? So in other words, you get a lot of compelling reasons to, to think so. Good questions. Well, let's go to the Christmas story a little bit, as this is theoretically a Christmas series. I want to talk to you about the Christmas story for a moment and kind of bring this together. And I also want you to start thinking about Christmas in maybe a slightly different way than we think about it. Not telling you what you think about it is not true, it's not useful. I just want to turn the prism a little, and I want to tell you how the early church thought about Christmas. So here are the stories. First of all, uh, Matthew chapter 1. What is he saying? This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. Do you think he made it up? I guess he could have. He's got some incredible details in there for a guy who made something up. I wonder where he got it. Oh my goodness, he could have talked to Mary. Yes. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Interesting. If, forget this story, assume it's not true, but assume for a moment Joseph is betrothed to Mary, and she's pregnant. That's not what should happen. In other words, they should not stay together. There's no way that a guy like Joseph, a respectable guy in Jewish society at the time, would go forward and marry her. And yet, he does. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded, took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and she, he gave him the name Jesus. God saves, or God saves us. So this is basically the Christmas story in Matthew, written by Matthew, who was with Jesus. In other words, this is very close in time and very good access to the eyewitnesses. Second, switch over to Luke for a minute. Listen to Luke's account. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, down near Jerusalem, to Bethlehem, a suburb, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Oh, that's coincidental, isn't it? That's what the prophecy said. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. Well, this is interesting because Luke sets this in a historical time frame. If, in other words, if you didn't want this to be disproved, you were making it up, you wouldn't put these details in there. Now, I'm going to tell you about a problem with one of these details in the interest of full disclosure. And because I'm not trying to whitewash this, I'm just going to tell you where it is. First of all, Caesar Augustus was Caesar from 27 BC till about 14 AD. So that makes sense. That ties in with the time frame that Jesus was born. Uh, there were census ordered in those time periods. There is a census ordered really close to when people think Jesus was born. Now, the only hitch in this story is Quirinius. According to other documents, Quirinius wasn't governor of Syria until 6 or 7 AD, too late for Jesus' birth. So how do you deal with that? Well, I'll just be honest. You don't know how to deal with that. Are there options? Sure. Quirinius, some would say, could have been governor more than once. The word for governor can also just mean magistrate. Maybe he was a magistrate in Syria before that time. He did issue a census, but perhaps there was another census that was also ordered earlier. But you don't know that. In other words, that piece of information, some people will seize it and say, aha, this whole thing's wrong because that one detail doesn't appear to be corroborated. The problem with that is this. Luke probably knows better than we do, right? Even though we've got some documents, the problem is you can never be sure you have all the documents. It's really hard to argue historically from the absence of evidence. You see what I'm saying? It's hard to argue and say that couldn't have happened because we haven't found this, and then the next day somebody digs it up. Tomorrow, somebody could find a document and say, first time Quirinius was governor was in 6 BC. Or 6 BC. That would work out perfectly, but you don't know. But I want to be honest with you, that can't be confirmed at the moment. But Caesar Augustus certainly can. The Gospels say that Joseph was in the line of David, so he would indeed in a census, have been required to go to Bethlehem. In other words, a lot of the other things are true. So this idea of the Christmas stories, it's not perfect, but the preponderance of evidence, and here's my thesis, makes it very reasonable, well beyond any reasonable doubt, well beyond the standard of proof that anybody applies to a lot of other historical events that you believe. In other words, the Bible exceeds the standard for veracity that we apply to other documents. So I think it's a very reasonable thing that the Gospels are telling you exactly what happened. Well, the early church liked these stories, and they said, this is the birth of Christ. But they didn't think about G Christmas as much as about Jesus being born in a manger with the little scenes and the Charlie Brown Christmas special and all of that. They really didn't think about it that way. You know what they thought about? They thought about the prophecy that God would become one of us. Emmanuel, God with us. They understood Christmas, the birth of Christ, as God becoming human. Look, look at this. The Gospel of John, the Word, he's talking about Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's a Christmas passage for the early church. What are they celebrating? The birth of a baby in a manger who would go on to die on a cross? To some extent, but really their emphasis was flipped. They thought about it as this is God coming down to earth to become one of us. Here's a passage you don't think of as a Christmas passage, but the early church did. Paul says this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. This is set out like it's a little poem, because it probably was. A little uh, standard thing. Could have been a song. Could have been a, well, it couldn't have been a praise song because he doesn't repeat the last verse 20 times. But it could have been a hymn, okay? He says, Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, but he emptied himself or made himself nothing. The word literally is he emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, becoming a human being, far, far, far below God, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. You have to be kidding me. He allowed himself to be killed, and he is God. In fact, one of my greatest lines uh, comes from a history, uh, church history book. It says, Christianity, and this is really interesting, is the only religion whose central event is the humiliation of its God. Think about that. Christianity is the only religion whose central event, the cross, is the humiliation of its God. You can't kill your God. He's got enough power to wipe this whole place out. And yet, look what it says. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, think resurrection, into heaven, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The early church had a sense of awe around Christmas that the God of the universe would humble himself to become one of us and be obedient to do what we could not do, even to the point of being humiliated and suffering, I'm not minimizing the suffering, but the humiliation of death on a cross. That was the essential meaning of Christmas to the early church, is the in, what we call the incarnation. In other words, God becoming human. And I would just suggest to you, think about Christmas that way a little bit. Don't think about it as you know, Black Friday, Friday or Cyber Monday, or you know, as the little nativity set with baby in a manger. Those are not wrong. Well, I mean, like maybe Cyber Monday, but bottom line, those are not wrong. I'm just saying, think about it from a little different perspective and you regain a sense of awe. You know, it's like David wrote, you know, 900 years before in the Psalms, he says, Oh Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who are we that you love us? Even David could marvel that the God who created the universe and the stars could care about us. The early church took that a step further and said, and you came to be among us and humbled yourself even to the point of death. To me, that's a powerful way to think about Christmas. And so it's not something that we, quote, celebrate. I mean, we do celebrate it, but it's a time of sober contemplation. That's why the early church, by the way, uh, not like very earliest, but pretty quickly, began what we call Advent. So if you didn't grow up in a church that celebrates Advent, let me tell you about it. It's not in the Bible. It's an early church practice. And so the four Sundays before Christmas, they would then worship with an expectant mindset. And so they might read the gospel accounts of the birth of Christ. They would read Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and remind themselves that they were about to celebrate, to memorialize what had happened. And they didn't think about it just as Jesus, and then he grows up, they think about God actually coming down to save us. It was, a, it was a joyous time, but it was also a time of contemplation. They felt like you need to get your mind in the right place. And so what I would just urge you to do as you get 
close to the Christmas season and we're all going to get busy and we're all going to be torn in a lot of different directions, maybe think about Christmas like the early church thought about Christmas. Maybe read Philippians 2, 5 through 11 and think about this idea and ponder God coming to earth. I think it will change the way we feel about Christmas, and I hope it will give us a little more sense of calm and peace. Because if the God of the universe came to do this for us, what can stand against us? As Paul would say in Romans, if God is for us, who could be against us? Who could ultimately defeat us? Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So this story of Christmas, this idea of an incarnation, is just a really powerful idea. So, in this session, I want you to just remember the idea of Christianity being rooted in history, that external evidence, the behavior of the early disciples, the internal evidence of it being eyewitness accounts, the dating that corroborates that. In other words, Christianity is not just a check your brain at the door and just take a blind leap of faith. Is there faith involved? Of course there is. There's not conclusive proof because we weren't there. Any more than there's conclusive proof that uh, George Washington chopped down that cherry tree. But all of the evidence says that is very likely to be true. And in fact, you believe things are true that don't have nearly that much evidence. It's a very reasonable thing to be a Christian. And as our series goes on, we're going to go on from there a little bit. And we're going to talk about some of the things that the New Testament says and how we can know that these things are accurate. Next time, however, I have a nice little surprise for you. We have a guest coming from Cambridge University in uh, England. His name is Dr. Peter Williams, and uh, I know him from his Greek work, but he's also just written a book called, a very interesting timing, it's called The Historical Reliability of the Gospels. Can we trust the Gospels? And so I'd like you to hear firsthand from one of the scholars, one of the top scholars in the world of what is the scholarly view of, are the Gospels reliable? And so we've talked about some of these evidences, but I'd like him to add into that a little bit, and you can hear somebody who has a different accent than I do, and I think that will be cool. So bring your friends. We will have plenty of room, but I'd love for you to hear Dr. Peter Williams talk about this issue and the scholarly consensus in the field about, are the Gospels historically accurate? So I'll see you next time.